KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. I'm Rebecca Lair. And I'm Amy Choi, and we are the Mashup Americans. This is a show about all the noisy and vibrant ways to be an American today. And the noisy and vibrant ways to be a Jew today. So hog some mayach, Amy. <laughs> happy holidays. Wait, what are you telling me? I'm saying happy holidays. We're celebrating Passover. Oh, yeah, the Jews' liberation from slavery, that whole thing? That one, and the very, 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 very long walk from Egypt to the Promised Land. No, that was super far. So far. Um, (laughs) So it's also just like a critical time to remember that we have all been strangers in a strange land at some point in our histories, and to reflect on how we can have some empathy for that, and also to eat a lot of matzah, which is just unleavened bread. Mm, I love matzah. My mom, like, my memory growing up of Passover is that my mom was always just so happy, like, in the weeks after Passover when matzah was on major sale, like, at Jewel. And then we would eat it with just, like, piles of country crock on it, which, in hindsight, like, is that gross or was that just 90s? I say deliciously 90s, <laughs> just like my favorite matzah PB&J. Um, so now I'm... Oh, but that's not 90s. That was late this morning. Right. That's the fact. Um, so I'm glad to know that you're a secret matzah aficionado. Well, I did grow up in the Jewish lands of the Chicago suburbs where matzah, latkes, like lox, they were the foods that reigned supreme. So, I I mean, but I'm not a Jew. I would like to know from you, what is Jewish food? Well, as I've said time and again, and it is one of the genesis genesis of our show. um, It's (laughs) getting real biblical today. (laughs) uh, Hell yeah. It's lime in my chicken soup, um, you know, which reflects my Salvadoran family. It's also herring. It's strudel. It's hummus. Well, to celebrate Passover and to explore all of these delicious cuisines, we have on the show today James Beard Award-winning cookbook author Joan Nathan, who is one of the world's experts in Jewish cooking. Yes, and she's with us to talk about her newest book, King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world. That's us, um, which just came out. By the way, did you know that the spice trade was mostly about dudes looking for herbal Viagra? I mean, I didn't, but <laughs> it's not that surprising that men would go to any lengths for penile support. So <laughs> with that, on to the show. I want to talk about King Solomon, Joe Nathan. What? He sounded like he was pretty into mashy stuff. Well, first of all, I have to say there may not have been a King Solomon. It might be King Solomon might just be a myth. But I like to believe there was a King Solomon. Sure. You know, a myth of the wonderful man, the powerful man, the man who had lots of wives from different places, which really ultimately in the food that he ate had to have been mashup because they would have brought their traditions with them. 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot of wives. Wait, and 300 <laughs> concubines? <laughs> right. What well, did that's he do what all day? <laughs> what? Wait, let's talk about King Solomon's time, the Viagra of King Solomon's time. <laughs> well, a lot of the spices. That's why the spices were expensive, and that's why they went in search of them to India and other places at a time that we thought that there wasn't any travel, but there was. Wait, the spices and, were expensive... 
because um, they were looking for Viagra? Well, they were looking for male potency. I, I found that in later years in documents, but I know that it was a fact from the get-go. Whoa. In other words, people thought that uh, turmeric, cardamom, ginger were good for male potency. I mean, I'm surprised that all of them didn't just move to India and be like, we will be the most <laughs> virile men on earth. Well, they, you know, they might. It seems to me that a lot of them probably found wives in India <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were young. I think these all were young men that went out in search of the spices. And India, you know, had spices, but they also had precious jewels, diamonds. They had stones. They had peacocks. Naturally. So that people were looking for these things to bring back. And each tribe of Israel was responsible to King Solomon when he lived to bring food from a different part of the world. And my guess is they all tried to outdo each other. It's really exciting to think about sort of travel at that and curiosity and wanting to and the kind of porousness of culture, right? Um, especially as we think about um, being rooted in tradition and what's traditional. And one of the things about your exploration of Jewish cooking from of, of, of this book, King Solomon's Table, and exploring Jewish cooking from around the world is thinking about how um, different communities are in conversation with the culture that they're living within. You know, one of the things that I really learned from this book was we always think of rooted cuisines like French cuisine or Italian, you know, that it's rooted in the land. But it really, I don't think any cuisine is totally rooted in the land, that their land, because there are always people that have been traveling and they bring things to the cuisine and they take things from the cuisine and bring it elsewhere. And that's certainly what Jews have done because they've been kicked out of places. They've been merchants. And so they've been interested in the new. They've always gone out in pursuit of new food. And so it's something that we taste on the table. Um, But, you know, when people say they want to go back for the traditions, I'm not sure there's a static tradition. I think everything has always been changing. It's also so interesting, too, to think about how when when we think of if we could recognize something from then, but also how we translate it and understand it today. Uh, Rebecca and I, we had gone to a Persian market yesterday for lunch and just picked up. I don't know what the it was like a three foot long piece of fresh bread, similar to a lavash. Oh, a naan. It was like a naan. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. And it was fresh from the oven. Beautiful. It had beautiful seating at the top. And we were sharing it with um, some Salvadoran family. And they were like, oh, Persian tortilla. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes total sense. So how is Jewish food a mashup? I'll tell you this funny story. My husband... And I were, went to the Russian embassy a few weeks ago. and um, What a time to go to the Russian embassy. You are not the only one to meet with the Russian ambassador, John. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Did you remember him? Is yeah, he forgettable? Yeah, he seems to be very forgettable these days. Right, forgettable. <laughs> no one seems to remember meeting with him. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. We did not meet with him. But anyway, they had Russian food. But the Russian food was smoked salmon. It was blini. 
It was egg with uh, scallions and chives that looked good. I didn't really taste that one. Hard-boiled egg. And as we were leaving, my husband said to me, you know, that was all Jewish food. And I said, no, it was Russian food. I have a feeling the smoked salmon was from Costco, however. But anyway. <laughs> that is a Jewish thing to get your and, smoked salmon right. from Costco. Just saying. But my, the thing is that my husband, who was Eastern European Jewish, he, he just only thought it was Jewish. And I said, no, Jews have assimilated. They assimilated to Eastern Europe. That wasn't Jewish food before they got there. And mm. he just was shocked. You know, I went to, as Rebecca knows, I went to El Salvador. Joan actually went to, yeah, spend time with my family. And um, at the at your grandmother's, Goethe, she had lots of El Salvadorian Jews. There are not a lot of Jews in El Salvador. There are about 100, 100 families, right? I'm related. 100 people, let's be honest. And again, <laughs> at the peak, there was 100 families, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So the, and... Um, there was a yucca latka. Yeah. Now, we think of potato latkas as absolutely Jewish, but potatoes didn't come to the old world until about, they weren't really eaten till maybe the end of the 18th, except for by animals, the 18th century. So before they had potato latkas, they had flour latkas. They had uh, those made of kasha. They were different. But as soon as potatoes came, they replaced them. And if, and yucca is replaced potato in uh, El Salvador. How do we think about this when we are using, let's say, of course, we're celebrating globalization. And the for many of us, the ease in which we can access um, through the Internet, even access a lot of these things. But in other ways, how do we think about this when we're using recipes from one place and recreating them in, a, in another how do you, what's your philosophy on the flexibility of substituting ingredients? Well, I think that's what Jewish food is all about. And that's part of the reason that I wrote my book, because I realized that as Jews moved, they had to learn to use other ingredients. Uh, let's just take a, a simple dish like brisket, okay? In Europe, nobody really ate brisket. And certainly in the Middle East, they probably used lamb. They might have used meat, but it would have been like short ribs in different ways. There was no brisket in the sense that we have brisket. Brisket was much more a European cut that was not through the bone, but around the bone. And it was not as big as ours. But it was always, in, 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 in the Eastern Europe, it was, it was a celebratory food for, let's say, a wedding, just as pastrami was, or rather corned beef. But when, it came to the, when they came to the United States, it was the land of beef, and they started cutting through the bone to get these big cuts of brisket after the Civil War. Wait, you're saying that brisket is an American Jewish food? Um, no, I'm saying it's an American food, but Jews adapted it because the bigger cut, you know, it was a grainier cut than others. So you had to cook it longer, but it's a delicious cut. And then in the United States, then Lipton's onion soup mix got into the brisket game. And even Coca-Cola was in, in brisket sometimes. 
and you'd get these Americanized briskets. But before that, the, the brisket that I always use and that my mother used was one with wine and with, um, you know, carrots yeah. and onions, but it was much more European. Hmm. Growing up, we used to marinate kalbi um, with Coke there as you a tenderizer, go. and then it would caramelize. Absolutely. So, you know, these things are all changed, and we, we think that the authentic was our big brisket. It wasn't. Mashup Americans see things a little differently than everybody else. So every week, we serve up a curated list of the most interesting stories from around the world. Subscribe to our newsletter at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter for a mashup take on global events. It'll make you think, laugh, and have your thoughts provoked. You will be delighted. So do it. mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. Authentic is a really interesting word for us. Is You know, like... As it applies to food, but as also as it applies to our anything that we do, like what is actually authentic? Does it have to be so accurate or tied to tradition or can it be authentic to an experience? And if your experience is Coca-Cola, why is that not an authentic way to make brisket? Well, it would be authentic if that's what you are used to using. I think that authentic, what we're thinking, people are always using that term. And I think that they're thinking that there was one way of doing things. That was the authentic way. Mm -hmm. But there's never been one way of doing things. And I always like to use the example of mortars and pestle. They're mortars and pestles that spontaneously grew all over the world. Because that's what you, they might be wood or they might be metal, but that's what people had to use when they were making food. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I think one of, because one of the focuses on, in your work, in in this specific book is about the diaspora Jewish community. And I think you specifically, when you featured um, a recipe of my grandmother's was chocolate and versed, one of the things that you pointed out in the recipe. Wait, can you tell what chocolate and versed is? Just a chocolate sausage. Chocolate sausage. Well, how would you describe it, um, Joan? Chocolate sausage. (laughs) Chocolate salami. Again, words that don't normally go together. But things you love. (laughs) Just things you love. Um, You know, one of the things you pointed out in it was like, especially in a small, very small Jewish community like El Salvador, that's actually quite a traditionally, you know, German, Jewish dish. It wasn't really developed into necessarily a Salvadoran Jewish version. There isn't necessarily Salvadoran Jewish cuisine. And I'm curious about, is there a tipping point when you're in a diaspora community when there's enough kind of size or scale for it to become a cuisine? Well, you know, it's hard when when you're talking about Jewish cuisine. The main part of Jewish cuisine are the dietary laws and the holidays that are connected to that. So that, like at your grandmother's, Friday night was a big deal. So you'd have a Friday night dinner that was authentic to what she did or what she thought her parents did or she remembered as what they did. But the big thing is it's a gathering together of people. Mm -hmm. And um, that's part of the cuisine of Judaism where you think, separation of meat and milk, kosher meat, no shellfish, no pork, kosher meat. 
not everybody does that, but in the back of their mind, hmm. they know about it. It makes sense. I mean, I think about that for like for my wedding, for instance. I'm not kosher. My family never has been. And my husband's not Jewish. And the food wasn't kosher, but we didn't have shellfish or pork at our wedding because that just felt egregious. <laughs> I would be like... Just to why why would you do that? There's so many other choices. It would be such a it would be kind of an aggressive anti Jewish thing to do. So there was like Absolutely. as you're saying, like a subconsciousness or a semi consciousness about that. It's just respect. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that you're really talking about when you say discuss your work as a storyteller and a storyteller through food and recipes is this idea of empathy and food as a bridge or connector entry point. Um, well, our friends at Roads and Kingdoms, which is a, a site, a media company um, that explores food and travel, um, they mm-hmm. have a banned country dinner series with proceeds going to benefit the International Rescue Committee. And they host mm-hmm. meals with food from banned countries. Where have you seen examples of food being used as a tool to build empathy? I mean, that's how I started writing about food in the first place. It it just builds bonds between people. And I remember when I was very young, in my early, mid-20s, living in Jerusalem, working for the mayor of Jerusalem, we were going out one day to an Arab village. And um, the the, the villagers, this was after the 67 war, it was 1970, and the, the people there wanted a road. And the mayor wasn't sure he could get a road for them because it was very far from the city. It was going to cost a lot of money. So we went for din- for lunch to their village. And they had my, to this day, my favorite chicken dish called musachan. It's chicken and pine nuts and, oh my, it's, and lots of sautéed onions and uh, I think so, a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of cloves and I can sumac. smell it right now. It, and it's on a big pizza bread soaked in olive oil. It is delicious. So we were s- sitting there eating, and the mayor, who loved to eat, was telling them how much he loved this chicken. And <laughs> they got their road. We got a good meal, and we were friends. <laughs> yeah, there was a way of understanding that community in a different way by sitting down to a meal with them and by appreciating it. And and the and I think the poorer the community, or the more immigrant the community, the more unsure they are of themselves, the prouder they are when you show empathy or delight in their food. Mm. I'm totally convinced of it. The pride question it re- that I mean that rings so uh, so close to home for me. You know, we actually had a conversation at last fall with Eddie Huang. Um, mm-hmm. the chef, he runs um, Bauhaus in New York and has a couple of other restaurants now. He's Taiwanese. He's uh, Taiwanese-American. And mm-hmm. um, at the event that we were hosting with him, we had a woman from the audience, a young woman, Korean-American, who grew up in Queens. And um, she was saying, you know, it was really only like in the past year or two of her life where she started to embrace Korean food and not be embarrassed by it like not be not have that like cafeteria lunch school shame of like she's a kid with a smelly food and I think you know there's there's something about giving people 
pride in what is theirs that 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 is so important oh no question about it. but there's you know it, it it is hard with middle school kids i'll tell you that <laughs> much, because they always want to be like each other but if you make their food if you all make it together and then they taste it um they might not be shocked by the smell anymore because it's just a different smell mm-hmm. normalizing it yeah so so joan nathan how do you mash up i am a polish uh slovenian jewish american what languages do you speak <laughs> french hebrew italian german and english what is your comfort food uh, you know, that's so funny. Rebecca just also makes that sound when I ask her a ves- vexing question. Uh, it's just there's a Jewish 25. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love hummus. I love hummus. I love chicken soup with matzo balls. Whenever I'm sick, that's something. Or just chicken. Actually, I love Vietnamese pho when I'm not feeling well. That's yeah. And, and I, yeah, totally. There's so many good I faux puns. That. Yeah. <laughs> right. But this is a terrible thing too, is that when you're the most one of the excellent cooks in the country, when you're sick, who's who's making you your chicken soup? I know. Uh, I just have some pressure for I send my husband No, I send my husband to the Vietnamese restaurant. Oh, that's a good answer. And, good solution. <laughs> What's always in your fridge? Well, either in the fridge or outside of preserved lemons, always. I love that. I love preserved lemons. Good cheese, yogurt, <laughs> a lot of condiments that I've used for one recipe. Mm-hmm. And, then and I save sometimes for years until one of my kids comes home and they start clearing, looking at dates on, you know, it's a classic kid move Mm -hmm. i can't wait for my daughter to one day do that to me but i definitely do that at my parents house my younger brother too he'll be like did you see this in the back shelf um finally what is your bubba well i'll tell you one one is i think that that you have to refrigerate eggs all the time to me that's you don't really have to I love that Joan's kids are just like rummaging around this world famous food historian's kitchen being like, oh my God, you got to get this out of here. Oh my God. I seriously cannot wait for that moment in my own life. (laughs) I'm halfway there. Um, Joan Nathan's new cookbook is King Solomon's Table. If you flip to page 310, you can see the chocolate sausage I grew up with. Um, I have some in my freezer right now, obviously. So delicious. I'm going to go rummaging in that freezer, girl. Well, if you want more Jewish and Passover-friendly recipes, head to mashupamericans.com slash food. We've got kimchi matzo brai, chicken soup with lime, all the goodies. The Mashup Americans are me, Amy Choi. And me, Rebecca Lair. Our producer today was Jacob Margolis. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Happy Matzah Days. Happy Matzah Days. Happy matzah days.